We're prepared tonight to receive into the membership of the church, uh, having completed, having been baptized and completed the new membership training, Ray Keller for membership by baptism. And I would uh, entertain a motion to that effect. Second. Seconded. All in favor say aye. All right. We did this on November the 19th. Now, there's a principle that uh, I may touch a couple of principles and I may do a little bit of talking in between, but there's a principle that you will find throughout Scripture that I suppose stated about as simply as it can be stated is this, that blessing is always followed by battle. Blessing is always followed by battle. We could start any number of places in Scripture to illustrate it. I have always thought that one of the most striking and perhaps shameful illustrations of this principle is the fact that as the early church of the American uh, expansion days swept across the frontier in great revival under men like George Whitfield on the East Coast and John and Charles Wesley and Gilbert Tennant and others as they spread the United States westward in the, the days of the great camp meetings where that literally followed the population expansion where the nation was Christianized as it moved to the west and churches were uh, constituted in towns overnight from a newly converted uh, population and churches were built where there had been no Christians before. That history records for us and I might add that some secular historians re record it for us with a great deal of pleasure that the best business that the prostitutes who followed the population westward ever had always followed the most successful revivals. In Scripture, it can be seen over and over and over again that blessing will always be followed by battle, or if you don't care to alliterate it, a period of blessing, an act of blessing, a time of victory will always be followed by a time of trial or a time of difficulty. That is without exception. We read that the Lord Jesus came away from his time of temptation in the wilderness with Satan victorious. But we also read that following that time of temptation, Satan left him for a season. But he followed him and haunted him all the way to the cross where through the mouths of men he said, if you're really the son of God, prove it right now. And through the mouth of a thief who said, if you're really the son of God, save yourself and us. And in the garden of Gethsemane, he there 
wrestled, literally, and the words used in the Greek, though not naming Satan as the adversary, he, there could be no other adversary. When it says that Christ agonized in Gethsemane, he wrestled there with Satan. The battle for his soul, the battle for obedience. Blessing is always followed by a time of testing. I have said recently, and will not embellish the statement, but repeat it as a point of reference, that, you know, no unbeliever has the capacity for misery that a Christian has. An unbeliever cannot possibly be as miserable as a Christian can be. Because an unbeliever is already dead in trespasses and sins. If he is sinful, the Bible says that he has uh, a native nature that makes him that way. It is natural and normal for him to be that way. And if we believe that Genesis teaches us that man fell from a state of graciousness, that his human nature became depraved by the fall, then we must believe that the unbeliever can sin without a guilty conscience in many cases. But a Christian, someone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ and who is not at peace with him, has a capacity for misery that an unbeliever doesn't know anything about. I think sometimes, I don't think, I know that sometimes we impose misery upon ourselves. And we do that because we make assumptions frequently unfounded on fact that unless we do or say a certain thing in a certain way within a certain context, or unless certain things happen around us in a certain way, whether it's at home or on the job or in church, that unless these things occur in this way, then something is wrong. And, you know, it's not new to say, I, I wouldn't even know who to quote if I decided to quote somebody, but it's no new or original thought to say that once Satan has lost the battle for the soul of an individual, he begins a battle for the spirit of the individual. And if he cannot keep the soul from salvation, he will try to keep the spirit from fellowship with God. And a very successful way he is able to do that with Christians is to get us to accept as right and routine and as something that must happen a certain set of circumstances. Satan may convince a new convert, and I think most of us know what that feels like. Satan, it is, who convinces the new convert that he'll never have any trouble. 
because I don't believe the Holy Spirit of God ever conveys that impression to anybody because that's unscriptural. Jesus would not have passed evangelism explosion that we're going to implement, and I'm not criticizing the program, but Jesus wouldn't have passed it because when a man came to him and Jesus read his thoughts and the man said, Master, I want to follow you, Jesus looked into the man's heart and he said, if you follow me, you're going to have to give up some things materially that you're not willing to give up. And the man went away. In fact, when you get saved, you sign on for certain trouble. Because Jesus Christ told his disciples plainly and simply, if the world hated me, the world will hate you. For if it hates the master, will it not also hate the servant? Now what I want to do tonight with just a few minutes, believe it or not, and tie it historically into what we're considering as we consider the book of Nehemiah is to just illustrate this principle without any great and lengthy outlines or illustrations but by the lives of three or four individuals and I won't know until I get started and keep an eye on the watch how many individuals that'll be but let us consider first of all the young man Daniel who was a contemporary of Nehemiah. Daniel was a teenage boy when his country fell to the Babylonians. As a member of the royal family, as an intelligent, obviously intelligent young man with a promising future, Daniel along with a great number of the educated and noble people of Jerusalem was taken away. And for the balance of his life, Daniel, even though he was tested more than once, was willed by the Lord to be in the court of the king in positions of high responsibility, in a very comfortable economic position, and to become one of the most powerful men in the ancient world in two different empires. There is the man Ezra whose life overlaps this same period of time. Ezra was a scribe and a priest which meant among other things that he was among the better educated men of his days. Ezra had gone to Babylon into exile. And Ezra was able, with God's direction and blessing, but because of the burden of his heart, Ezra was able to secure permission to return to Jerusalem to try to lead the remnant of the people who was there back to rebuild the temple. Ezra went home as a religious reformer, not as a political leader the way Nehemiah did. And it became Ezra's lot for 14 years to be totally and completely frustrated. 
as he dealt with the Jewish exiles because of the influence of their enemies who had more political power than he and because of the failure of the people to respond to the ministry. There was during this same period of time any number of men whose prophecies touched the scriptures. There is the man Haggai. We know very little about him except we know that it was Haggai whose bitter, denouncing, cutting, vicious, if you please, sermon that is, that is, that is the biblical book of Haggai, the two chapters. As plain and hard and vicious talk as there is of the unfaithfulness of God's people in the Old Testament, Haggai became a catalyst to move the people toward commitment by being used of the Lord. But Haggai's lot likewise was to be among those of the remnant in Jerusalem. There was Esther. Esther's parents were dead. Her name was Hadassah. She was adopted by her uncle Mordecai. And in the providence of God, she came to sit in her adult life for many years as the queen of the world's greatest empire and was given the opportunity to save her nation. And her uncle Mordecai, in a position much like that of Daniel, was finally vindicated and lifted from a position of shame and ridicule to a position next to the king. And while Mordecai was by the king, Ezra was home with a bunch of misfits and malcontents and ne'er-do-wells that the Babylonians had not even seen fit to carry off into exile. But then there's another man. It's going to be a long time before I feel fit or before I have the fortitude to so approach his book as to preach it. But that man is the man Jeremiah, who was the prophet in the exile. Jeremiah was a very noted and highly visible prophet of high reputation. Through the reign of at least two kings, Jeremiah had been the voice of God in Jerusalem. It had fallen his lot to tell Zedekiah, the king of Judah, because of the sins of the people, as I promised Solomon when he dedicated the temple, Jerusalem is going into captivity. But I will be merciful if Zedekiah will surrender to the king of Babylon, the city will not be destroyed. And he preached that sermon until it almost cost him his life. And then, lo and behold, Zedekiah, trying to make an alliance with Egypt, 
found himself surrounded, tried to escape Jerusalem by night. He was captured. They kept him alive. They gathered his family. They slaughtered his children in front of his eyes, and then they pierced his eyes until he was blind so that the last thing he ever saw was the death of his own children. Because he had simply, flatly, willfully refused to obey the revealed will of God. Now, by the time Jerusalem fell, Jeremiah was known to the king of Babylon, and so were his prophecies. And Nebuzaradan, a high official, in the king's army, was sent to the prophet Jeremiah and offered to take him to Babylon. Had he gone to Babylon, he would have been able to live a life of ease. Had he gone to Babylon, he would have been able to live out the years of exile if he lived that long and returned, for he prophesied 70 years exile. But Jeremiah understood that his calling was to minister to that rebellious, willful remnant that was left behind. And so rather than go to Babylon, where he would have been in company with Nehemiah in later years and with Daniel, and where he would have been comfortable... He stayed in Jerusalem, a victim almost of his own prophecy. And when they left Jerusalem, the only thing they left behind were the people that were no good to them. They took the leaders. They took the technologists. They took the uh, engineers and the thinkers and the leaders. They took them with them to strengthen the government of the empire, and they left Jeremiah at his freedom. It was his choice to make. They left him with the remnant. Years later, Jeremiah, and I will not bother with the chapter in verse, but it's in the 26th, 27th chapter somewhere in there. Jeremiah as he is called often the weeping prophet, Jeremiah had a way in his book sometimes of just talking out loud to God. And on one of those occasions, Jeremiah says to God, Lord, I have delivered your message to this people for over 25 years, and not one of them has believed it yet. Why are you doing this to me? but he remained faithful to his calling. And the day after the exile, Jeremiah continued to deliver God's word to the people the same way that he did the day before the exile. You recall in the book of Daniel that we discover that Daniel found out by reading 
the sermons of Jeremiah that the exile was of 70 years duration. And so Jeremiah constantly was telling the people in Jerusalem, God has punished, but God will forgive and God will restore if we wait. But at length, such leadership as they had in that community decided for reasons unclear and vague even in the scriptural record that if they remained in Jerusalem, the king of Babylon was going to come back and destroy them all and kill them. And Jeremiah said, No, thus saith the Lord, you must stay here. God is going to allow the city to be rebuilt. But they wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. And they said to themselves, which is always a terrible place to begin asking for advice on matters of eternal importance is from each other. They said to themselves, We'll go to Egypt. Now, Egypt is a great empire, and we'll be safe from the king of Babylon there. Jeremiah couldn't dissuade them. He could not talk them out of it. They would not be turned from their proposed course of action. And they packed up lock, stock, and barrel, and they deserted Jerusalem, and they went to Egypt. Now, Jeremiah had another opportunity. All he had to do was find the next caravan and go to Babylon and take up the emperor on his offer. But God said to Jeremiah, I want you to go to Egypt with those rebels. And Jeremiah went. Nothing he had been able to do could dissuade them. 25, 30 years, who knows? And they'd never listened. But God called him. God led him. And he would not turn back on God's call. Which is not a very good option either, if you consider what happened to Jonah. After they got to Egypt... The Lord spoke to Jeremiah again. And you know, I don't really know. It doesn't say, but there had to have been one or more times when Jeremiah felt like saying to the Lord, Lord, why don't you use somebody else for a change? You know, everything you tell me that I tell them comes true, but they don't ever believe it. And it always makes them mad. And nobody likes me. I feel paranoid today. Why don't you let somebody else deliver this message? But the Lord spoke to Jeremiah again. And he said, I want you to do something. I want you to tell the people. You have come to Egypt to escape the king of Babylon. Jeremiah took a stone. And there in the community where the exiles had settled down to live, Jeremiah put that stone out in the middle of the ground. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Surely the king of Babylon will set his throne upon this stone.
And while Nehemiah and Ezra, finally after 14 years of frustration, Nehemiah came with the political power to help him out. While Nehemiah and Ezra, though troubled with joy, rebuilt the wall and rededicated the temple, the king of Babylon had indeed conquered the land of Egypt, set his throne upon that spot to hold court. And Jeremiah, while his brethren rejoiced in the rededication of the temple, died in exile in Egypt. Now that doesn't hardly seem fair, does it? Jeremiah is the one that told us all about it. Jeremiah was the reason that Daniel knew how to pray for his people. Jeremiah was the reason that Ezra and Nehemiah knew what to ask the king to let them do. Jeremiah was the one whose words gave certainty to the prayers of God's people. And Jeremiah's prophecy and his sermons and his books circulated among the faithful Jews in Babylon were what kept them together as the revealed Word of God and brought them home with joy to rebuild the wall and rededicate the temple. And Jeremiah died in exile in Egypt, and it doesn't seem fair. But you know, somehow, I must believe that when Jeremiah drew his last breath, he drew it with a clear conscience and a happy heart because he had been obedient to the will of God. I don't think Jeremiah died an embittered man because others were realizing the joy of the fulfillment of the prophecy that he had made, but rather he just knew God wouldn't let him go to Babylon the first time. God wouldn't let him go to Babylon the second time. God wouldn't even let him stay behind in Jerusalem and help out there. God sent him with the remnant and he died in exile on foreign soil, which meant a great deal to him because he was faithful to God's calling. I have no idea nor even a guess about the long-term future of any one individual in the world, myself included. I would like to identify with a Moses or a David or a Paul or even a Peter who though he died a martyr, died a glorious martyr, having had opportunity to lead the New Testament church through exciting days. 
But everything I have said tonight, I have said for this reason. And I want you to take it to your heart the way the Lord has put it to my heart. I don't know, no disrespect intended, whether this local assembly is the exiles, the remnant, are the returnees that are going to see magnificent and glorious accomplishment. I don't know whether you and I will enjoy all of the good things that Daniel enjoyed, endure all of the years of frustration that Nehemiah or that Ezra endured. I don't know if any of us will know all of the tremendous success that Nehemiah enjoyed when he rebuilt the wall and rededicated the temple. And I don't know if I, along with you, will experience the fate of Jeremiah. But I have one thing in common with Jeremiah tonight. This is November the 19th. The initial contact with my beloved and precious friend Richard Douglas, who was murdered last year. From this church that led to his referral of your pulpit committee to me was dated on November the 22nd, 1978. Seven or eight months after that, I became aware in the early days of May of last year that God wanted me to come here. And up till and including the present day, I know that that was the proper commitment of my life. But I know something now, I believe something now that I did not know then. And that is, I don't know what it's going to be. I have an idea, but I don't know. See, God's under no obligation to fulfill my expectations. But even if it were to be like Jeremiah as opposed to Nehemiah, I know that my future and my calling is right here. And so is yours. God does not demand that you be successful. You know, by, by the modern model of success in the ministry, that you cannot find a half a dozen successes in the whole Bible, and that the biggest failure of them all was Jesus. God doesn't demand 
what we call success. But he demands faithfulness. And I don't know what or when or where. By where I mean at what place within the environs of this southeast coast, coastal town of Stewart. But I want to draw that breath and go to be with the Lord and know that I was faithful. And I want the same thing for you. That can only happen when it matters a great deal more to us individually that God is pleased than it does that we are pleased. Do you have any idea how easy it would have been for Jeremiah to have gone to Babylon and lived out his life in pleasure and plenty? And it would have served them right. You know, according to him, they never did respond. Never. But God wanted him there. And he was there. How easy would it have been for Daniel to quit opening the windows of his apartment and getting down on his knees and praying toward Jerusalem three times a day for a month? How easy would that have been? How easy would it have been for Nehemiah to shake off his depression, to ignore his God-given burden, and to stand by the right hand of the emperor every day in a position of great prominence instead of traveling back across that wilderness and risking his life and expending the personal fortune he had amassed to help rebuild the city. How easy would that have been? How easy would it have been for Ezra the scribe to keep that nice bureaucratic job he was given in Babylon and fellowship with Daniel, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and the other faithful Jewish exiles? And how fair it would have been if that remnant of no good ne'er-do-wells who had not listened to the word of God had never heard it again. But Scripture says in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, on a very personal note, I have one great and overriding desire 
as a minister. And that is that in God's providence, at his good pleasure, when his time is, I want to have been a part of a church that is no worse, if anything, better because I have left the scene when I go to be with him. We used to catechize our children. Some of you, without revealing your age, may have been catechized and had it called catechism when you were children. We asked the children, who created you? They say, God. We asked the children, why did God create you? And they say, so that we may know him and enjoy him forever. We asked the children, what is the chief end of man? They say, the glory of God. It's impossible to be so precise with so complex an issue. But I want to read you ten verses of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 2. Now, Ezekiel is a man that I haven't dealt with tonight. I could have. I told you I'd try to watch the clock. But Ezekiel chapter 2 is the kind of calling that God gives when God sends a man to carry his word to a people. You know, I want you to understand that I know that I'm a messenger boy. I have no authority except derived authority, except bestowed authority, except authority that is faithful by proclamation to God's Word. But Ezekiel 2 is the call of God to his man and in a sense to every Christian when he deals with the world. It, it's kind of ironic to me that somehow these words are not in the book of Jeremiah. Oh, they are there. In fact, more than once the Lord tells Jeremiah, just go and do it and quit complaining. But here it is articulated so clearly. Peter and John once had to tell a man, you know, don't worship us, we're just people. But this is the calling of God. And this is where I'm coming from when I stand behind what my granddaddy used to call the sacred desk to open the Word of God. Ezekiel 2 says, And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon your feet, and I will speak unto you. 
And the Spirit entered into me, and when he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet, that I heard him who spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send you unto them, and you shall say unto them, Thus saith the Lord. Know that there hath been a prophet among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, their briars and thorns be with thee, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are, a, for they are most rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say unto you, be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book that was therein. And he spread it out before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written within, there was written therein lamentation and mournings and woe. And, of course, chapter 3 of Ezekiel continues this word picture, and he eats the scroll, which is God's word that he's supposed to give to the people. And it is uh, sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his gut. But God has told him already, if they listen, fine. If they don't, fine. But don't you rebel like they rebelled. You do what I say. That's why when it was wrong for Zedekiah not to surrender to the king of Babylon and go with him, it was right for Jeremiah to stay in Jerusalem. That's right. That's why when it was wrong for that remnant to go to Egypt and miss out on the restoration of Jerusalem. It was wrong for them to do that. It was right for Jeremiah to go with them because God had called him to minister to them and to be faithful. And until the king of Babylon came and set up his throne and Jeremiah did indeed die in Egyptian exile, He did not enjoy the success of Daniel, the notoriety of Mordecai and Esther, nor the success and joy that Nehemiah knew when the temple was rededicated after the rebuilding of the wall. But he was faithful. And that is all that God demands from any of us. May we pray. Father, I don't know, and you've chosen not to let us know 
what tomorrow holds, and we're grateful for that. For Scripture has promised us that we don't need to know it, for every day has enough worry of its own without being worried about tomorrow. But, Father, I would pray for grace and peace and courage that individually and together you would grant us the wherewithal to simply obey. Lord, we'd like to rebuild the wall. We'd like to restore the temple. We'd like to hear the cheers when the work is done. But wherever it is and whatever the circumstances are, how much rather we would rather be able to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we come before you. Grant us a singleness of heart that will allow no one of us to settle for less than being perfectly within your will. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.